All right, so last week we began a new series entitled A Beautiful Mess, a study of 1 Corinthians. So if you're new to this place, this is a great time for you to, to dive in with us. Welcome to the beautiful mess. If you look around, you're surrounded by one human train wreck after another. Welcome to the church. The church, by definition, is a group of people who recognize that they don't have it all together. The church, by definition, is a group of people who realize that they are great sinners in need of a great Savior. We try our our best at reputation management. We're really good at that in the Bible Belt. We try our best to cover up the sin in our lives in the hopes that no one will figure out that we are, in fact, human train wrecks. We're like onions in the Bible Belt, right? There are many layers to us, and so you have to peel back like 18 different layers to get to the real you. But at the end of the day, anyone in this room who's not kidding themselves, who's not lying to themselves and everyone around them is, in fact, an undeniable, beautiful mess. This letter of Paul's that we'll look at for the next few months was written to a church full of human train wrecks just like you and me. It tells of how the gospel powerfully brings redemption into the midst of the sin, into the midst of the messiness. For those who actually understand the gospel, you know that we don't, uh, we don't have the opportunity to look down our noses at the church in Corinth. Right? They're not that church that's at the bottom uh, of the totem pole, so to speak. Every church is, is a mess because every church is made up of messy, sinful people like you and me. And so we desperately need to hear what God has to say to the church in Corinth. It's a timeless letter, and yet it's so timely for you and me today. Last week, I mentioned that we want to be a church that keeps the Bible in context, that doesn't take the Bible out of context. We don't want to just take verses and slap them onto the side of coffee mugs or bumper stickers or really loud t-shirts. We don't want to do that. We want to recognize that every word in the Bible is written in the context of a sentence, that every sentence is written in the context of a paragraph, that every paragraph is written in the context of a chapter, and so forth and so on. And so last week, we took a look at a few things that helped to set the stage contextually for this letter that Paul is writing. And so first of all, we looked at the author, the Apostle Paul himself, the former Christian killer. The very first word of this letter screams of the grace of God, does it not? Paul. Right? Prior to his conversion, he was known as Saul, a devout Pharisee. And for those of you who have read the Gospels, you know that um, devout Pharisees in Jesus' time didn't much care for Jesus, nor did they care for those who loved and followed Jesus. And so as the original 12 were seeking to go forth with the Gospel and plant the New Testament church, Saul was on a mission to destroy the New Testament church. He was on the scene for the execution of the very first New Testament Christian martyr, a guy by the name of Stephen. You find his story in Acts chapters 6 through 8. Paul not only witnessed Stephen's execution, but we're told that he approved of it. He was a violent hater of all things Christianity. He was metaphorically and literally spitting on the bride that Jesus bled out and died for. And God reached down by his grace and said, no more, you're mine. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again. If you think you're beyond the reach of God's grace this morning, you're wrong. For Saul, his conversion took place on the road to Damascus. We read about that story in Acts chapter 9. We're told that he was literally knocked off his horse by the blinding, radiant light of the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, no more, you're mine. And when Jesus says, no more, you're mine, guess what? You're his. He was given the name Paul and went on to become Uh, one of the early church's first missionaries, a pioneersman for church planting. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean landscape and went on to write more letters in the New Testament than any other author. 
When you see the name Paul in the Bible, his name alone is a testimony that the grace of God has absolutely no bounds. Paul's story is saturated with God's grace. He didn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He didn't earn his way into the family of God. Prior to his conversion, he believed that there were good guys and that there were bad guys. And so the idea was to be a good guy because God loves the good guys. And when he encountered the blinding radiance of the risen son of God on the road to Damascus, he realized that he was quite wrong, that the gospel, in fact, says there aren't good guys and bad guys, but rather there are bad guys and Jesus who came to save all of the bad guys like you and me from ourselves and our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. You and I cannot will ourselves into the family of God. Our resume condemns us, just like Paul's. So thanks be to God that he wills us for his own. Thanks be to God that he reaches down in his grace and breathes life into our dead, lifeless souls and says, no more, you're mine. That's Paul's story, and that's your story, and that's my story if you're a Christian. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, a church that he had planted on his second missionary journey. And so very much like Cross Point Peachtree City, we're talking about a church in her infancy, Before he gets to the body of this letter, he shares with this family of Christians that he often gives thanks for them, which makes sense, right? They were killing it in Corinth, right? Conversions left and right, baptisms taking place. They were linking arms, unified as a family. They were on mission. They were doing everything so very well, right? Wrong. That's not the story at all. If you remember from last week, I shared these things with you, some of the things going down in this particular church. They were loving Greek philosophy and rhetoric more than Jesus. They were treating church leaders like Christian rock stars. They were unashamedly, and here's the key word, unashamedly sleeping with their own family members. They were suing one another over relational conflicts. They were soliciting prostitutes, which every good church does. They were getting drunk during communion, and they were questioning the validity of the resurrection. Right? Paul's addressing what, what most of us would consider to be the most jacked up church in the New Testament era. It's the church that you check out once, you fill out a connect card with a bogus name and number, and you disappear forever. You don't come back to this church. Corinth is the smelly kid in class. I said this last week. Corinth is the kid that can't throw. Corinth is the loner at the lunch table. It's absolutely absurd at first glance that Paul would even use the language of the church as he addresses these people. Many of us have written off churches for far, far less than what's going down in Corinth. But, but here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus came for Corinth. It's tattooed all over the pages of the gospels. From tax collectors and adulterers to liars and thieves, Jesus came for Corinth. From pagans and prostitutes to murderers and drunkards, Jesus came for Corinth. And that's good news for all the smelly kids in class like you and me. The truth is you're Corinth, and so am I. Apart from God's grace, we'd be absolutely done for. And that's why Paul gives thanks for this group of human train wrecks. He's not ultimately trusting in their righteousness. He's trusting in Jesus' righteousness for them. He realizes that they, similar to themselves, cannot possibly pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They're terribly unqualified for the kingdom of heaven. But God in his grace called them for his own, just like he called Paul. And Paul knows that there's a great work of sanctification, most certainly, that needs to take place in this church. But he also knows that God always finishes what he starts, particularly in the hearts of his people.
And so even in the midst of the mess, he can give thanks for God's grace in Corinth. Now this morning, we get a little bit of insight as to what provoked Paul to to actually write this letter. There are a number of things that Paul addresses throughout the course of this letter, but he's particularly interested in addressing right off the bat factions within the church, division within the church. And so verse 11 says this, Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, you'll find out sooner than later that I have a very active imagination. Um, I'd like to give thanks to uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for that, uh, Pinwheel, uh, Sesame Street, and the list could go on. Now it's Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood with, with our eight-month-old daughter, Um, I I get very distracted as I'm studying the Bible sometimes, and so immediately as I read verse 11, those of you fans of the hit show 24 will know this, I'm picturing Chloe O'Brien on a laptop just hammering out, you know, this stuff to Paul, trying to let him know, you know, I'm 80% on the progress bar, bar, Paul, hang on, give me about 10 more seconds, and I'm going to zap this over to you, Paul's got his smartphone, he receives it, what quarreling going on in the church of Corinth, let me take care of this problem. Obviously, this is not who's on the scene. Chloe O'Brien was not around in Paul's day, and Paul is no Jack Bauer, although he is pretty beastly. So who is Chloe? We don't know a lot about her. We don't know whether she was a Christian or not. We don't know if she lived in Ephesus where Paul is writing this letter on his third missionary journey or if she lives in Corinth. Um, Most commentaries believe uh, that she is a businesswoman who travels back and forth with her posse of people. Um, the, the thing that matters most that we understand is that apparently the church in Corinth knew who she was well enough that Paul could throw her name out there. He could drop her name, and it would establish some credibility to his argument. He goes on to say in verse 12, what I mean when I talk about quarreling is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. The problem, the cause of division in this particular church is that people are getting on personality-driven bandwagons. Some are boasting in regard to whom they pledge their allegiance in this church. Some say Paul, some say Apollos, some say Peter, some even say Jesus. We all do this, right? I follow John Piper. I listen to Matt Chandler's podcast. Oh, I don't listen to those guys that still have breath in their lungs. I read old dead guys like the Puritans and Luther and Spurgeon. Um, Maybe it even happens with denominations or networks. I'm a part of an Acts 29 church, the first network of churches that has actually gotten it right in 2,000 years, as if that could possibly be true. We put imperfect human beings on a pedestal that only Jesus is intended to sit on. We jump on someone else's bandwagon and align ourselves with them because it makes us feel important. That's why anybody would keep up with the Kardashians. You ever thought about how weird that is? That we all sit on our couches and vicariously live through other people who only have their fame and fortune because we sit on our couches and vicariously live through those people. It's really crazy when you think about it, right? Most of us are not going to have the paparazzi following after us. Most of us will never live in a home like the Kardashians live in. Most of us will never have that kind of fame that they have. And so if we can just kind of grab hold of their coattails and ride their coattails, then maybe we might know what fame and fortune actually tastes like. And at the heart of that is pride driving that at the root to the surface, which is creating factions 
When I was a sophomore in college, I moved out of the dorms, moved into an apartment with a couple guys. Um, one is now my brother-in-law, crazily. Um, we married twins. So now every family vacation is awesome because I get to team up with my brother-in-law against my father-in-law. It's really sweet. The other guy that we moved in with is a guy named Chad. He's a pastor now. Actually, all three of us are pastors, which is really crazy because if you had watched our decision-making in college, you would probably go looking around in dumpsters to see if you could find us now. Um, When we moved into that apartment, we began to unpack our vehicles, and it was really funny because Chad pulled out of the back of his car. He had a Mustang convertible at the time, pulled out of the back of his Mustang what appeared to be a baby hammerhead shark that was mounted with a plaque underneath. And my first two thoughts were, one, why would you mount a hammerhead that's that tiny? I mean, that just seems to be bragging about nothing. And number two, it's still a shark, so this is really cool. Let's put it on the wall. Um, (laughs) But it, it took a few conversations for me to clue in on why we had this thing. Come to find out, my roommate Chad had caught the world record bonnet head shark. For those of you who know what a bonnet head is, it's a, it basically is a miniature hammerhead in looks. And uh, he had caught this world record bonnet head as a teenager, and names on the wall of Bass Pro Shop in Savannah, really crazy. Um, put it up on the wall of our apartment, and for the next three years, I used my friend Chad to try to get girls and to try to make friends with people. So anytime it was, hey, let's have a hangout. Oh, let's do it at our house. And then people would come in and they would see the shark. And if Chad was, was there, I would kind of, you know, talk about it and try to pull him away from Chad, you know, so that, you know, we could be friends. Or if Chad wasn't there, it was, oh, yeah, my, my buddy, one of my best friends, actually, he's probably going to be a groomsman in my wedding. He caught this world record shark, which is really cool, as if I had done any of that work. I would have ruined the whole thing. I would have pulled the thing in the boat and said, that's a really tiny, tiny hammerhead and just tossed it back into the ocean. But I thought I could actually ride the coattails of my roommate somehow and make much of myself. That's what's going on in this church. I follow these somebodies, and that helps me to feel like less of a nobody. And if you don't follow these same somebodies, well, that's a good cause for division. Some are saying, I follow Paul. He planted this church. He baptized me. He baptized some of my friends, some of my family members. My allegiance is with Paul. And others are going, I follow Apollos. Have you heard that dude preach? It's like honey rolling off of his tongue when he opens his mouth. He's educated. He has an Alexandrian education. He's got a Greco-Roman swagger about him. I follow that guy. Still others say, I follow Peter. We don't really know a lot of the background of those who align themselves in the Peter camp. It's possible that as Paul was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that maybe the Gentiles followed Paul. And those with a a Greco-Roman influence and background followed Apollos and Peter being a guy who was called to preach the gospel to the Jews. Maybe those with a Jewish background were drawn to Peter. We don't really know for sure, but clearly people were attaching themselves to certain personalities in the church, and it was causing discord among the people. You see this all the time in the church, right? It's not uncommon for a church to live or die on the foundation of a mere man's personality or giftings. And so there are churches all over the place that have grown in number with no sign of Jesus on the scene, growing as a result of the personality or giftings of a man rather than the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And on the flip side, churches close every day because they were built on the personality and giftings of a man who had a moral failure or left. 
because they weren't based on the exaltation of Jesus Christ on his throne. Can I just address the elephant in the room this week? This is a little weird week two for me, but I can't stand to have an elephant sit in the room, just stare at all of us. So I'm gonna address this. If your mentality is, I was around from the very beginning of this church plant. Josiah planted this church. He baptized me. He baptized my friends, my family members. I followed Josiah. As he leaves, I leave too because my allegiance is with him. Or if your mentality is, there were a lot of things I didn't really care about with respect to Josiah. I kind of like this new guy. I followed Jamie. Or if your love language is team and you go, I followed Jason. He is all about team. Or I love creating artistic things out of nothing. And so I, I love what James is doing here. I follow James. If that's your mentality, get ready for the fallout, church, where man is elevated to a place of supremacy. Division is inevitable and the church will inevitably crumble. How foolish would it be for us to gather in this place and sing, in Paul alone, my hope is found, or my hope is built on nothing less than Apollo's blood and righteousness. I don't ever want to be the hope of this church, the cornerstone. She will surely crumble and will kill everyone in the wake of the rubble. Jesus is a really, really good cornerstone. And we sang about that just a moment ago. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, okay? As a reaction to such foolishness, there's a fourth camp that says, I follow Christ. Now, that seems to be a really good thing to say, right? Any of you who have sat in a Sunday school class knows that the right answer is always what? Jesus, right? You can just picture your Sunday school teacher saying, okay, I follow blank. The wrong answer is Paul. Don't put Paul in that blank. I follow, don't put Apollos there. Don't put Peter there. Who do we put in the blank? Jesus. And it sounds really godly on the surface to say that, but what's happening is that this fourth camp is a response, an anti-authoritarian response to all of the personality-driven discord in the church. Most commentators agree that this fourth camp is saying, I hate all of this division. I don't want to get caught up in all of this absurdity, so I follow Christ alone. Sounds really Christ-like, doesn't it? But it's terribly unbiblical. It's pride at the root. It's just a different manifestation of it. If the answer to personality-driven factions in the church is to abandon authority altogether, then we have to throw out chapters of the Bible like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, passages that talk about deacons and elders in the church, church leaders. The church is notorious for this kind of unhealthy pendulum swinging. You see it all the time. And so you have this unhealthy thing going on over here. And so as a reaction, we just swing the pendulum way over in the other direction to the next unhealthy thing, right? And all of a sudden what we've done is we've jumped from one uh, ditch that's in opposition to the gospel to the other ditch and have completely bypassed the gospel path altogether. That's what's going on here. Paul's saying it's problematic to make a human being your functional savior, but it's also problematic to buck authority altogether from a human vantage point. So the question this morning for us is this, what's your tendency here? Are you more likely to put others within evangelicalism on a pedestal specifically church leaders, pastors? Or are you more likely to buck against God-given leadership structures in the church? Paul says, we got a real problem here, and it's time to do something about it. 
And I love verse 10, he makes his appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the original Greek, the word translated united in this verse means to mend or to restore or to set right. It's the same word used in the Gospels when we talk about the disciples mending their fishing nets. So get, get this image in your mind of a fishing net with a giant hole in it. Or think of a broken bone that needs to be set right. Without this mending or this restoring, the fishing net loses its functionality, right? Without the resetting of the bone, the body part loses its functionality. When I was in elementary school, I broke both of my pinkies in a kickball accident. I was going for a ball. I was trying to catch it before it hit the ground so I could get the guy out. And the first two things to hit the ground were both of my pinkies. You can look at them right now. They're really jacked up. They kind of go crooked and, and out to the side. And for weeks, I couldn't do simple things. I couldn't write. It's really hard to write with four fingers, right? You, you all know what this is like if you've broken a bone. Maybe you've broken your toe and all of a sudden walking becomes really complicated for you. Or you break your thumb and there are things that you thought you could do so easily that now you can't do. That's the idea here. Paul's saying you lose your functionality as the church when you're divided. When you're not unified under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his person and work, when you don't sing that same song, you lose your functionality as the church. Now, here's what Paul does. I love Paul because he doesn't just say, hey, unite, get to work doing that. But rather what he does in verses 13 through 17 is he offers some gospel fuel. He douses this thing with, with gospel fuel, this appeal um, of his, so that we might actually go forth in the power of the gospel and live this out. It's really sweet. And he does it by asking some questions behind each of which is a truth statement. So let me just walk you through these, and, and we'll just douse you with some gospel fuel, one dousing after another until we get to the end of this passage. The first question is this. He says, is Christ divided? The, the truth declaration out of that is this. Christ is, is not divided. Christ is not divided, nor should his body be. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and we'll get there soon enough. Uh, Paul says this, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. That he's saying that Christ is one. Christ is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ and we all have a functionality about us as we unite. When you think of the Trinity, you, you have a, a uniting, right? You have a oneness, and yet you have differing roles. There's an equality in power, um, and yet there's a differing in roles, so to speak. The same thing in, in marriage. You become one flesh, and yet you have differing roles in a marriage to play. Same idea here. The church is one body, and yet she, she has differing roles amongst the members to play. Let me use this analogy. Uh, James, who leads us in song week in and week out. And imagine that, that James's uh, right hand, and, and you'd have to enter into Daniel Tiger's neighborhood for this to happen, right, where body parts and just different things come to life and are animated. But let's just do that for a second, okay? Let's enter into Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Imagine that James's right hand looks at his left hand and starts talking and says, I'm really happy that I'm led by the right shoulder and the right elbow, and the right wrist, unlike you, left hand, 
which are led by the left shoulder and the left elbow and the left wrist. Okay, now imagine that weird conversation took place. And then James came back up to lead us in the next song. And the right hand grabbed a pick and started playing eloquently through a strum pattern really well. And the left hand said, I'm not jumping in to participate in that. You just belittled me in everything that, that I participate in doing here. Anybody know what that would sound like? It sounds really bad. Have you ever heard someone strum an open chord on an acoustic guitar? Right? It might work if you're playing a banjo because if memory serves me right, you can actually play a banjo and you can play it open and it's a chord. It's a G chord, I think. But with an acoustic guitar, it sounds horrifically bad. Okay? You can't make music with just one hand playing an acoustic guitar. You can't do that. It's very hard to do it with a piano as well. The idea is that the church has a song to sing, and if we don't come together and unite, rather than functioning in factions divided in discord with one another, that song's going to sound really terrible to the world listening in. And that's the problem for a lot of churches. The song they're singing is not appealing to anyone's ears. The idea is that we unite and come under the banner of the person and work of Jesus. He's the head of the church. We are his body. We're meant to sing a song, and we must come together and be united in order to do so, in order for that song to be beautiful. We get Paul's second question in verse 13. He says, was Paul crucified for you? And he's making another point here, which is that no mere man was crucified for you. Jesus was. Right? This is brilliant. So Paul's coming after his own cult following first. He's not going to attack you know, the Apollos party or uh, Peter's camp or these people who are the anti-authoritarian. We follow Jesus type of people. He comes after his own people first, which is really wise. He's going he's gonna to come after that first and foremost before he comes after some of these other parties. Um, and, and he does so by saying, uh, I wasn't crucified for you. I mean, do you not, do you not remember my story? Do you not remember that I was killing those of you who were following the risen Jesus not too long ago? I was in blatant, hostile opposition toward the gospel and everything Christianity. I had to be knocked off of my horse by the blinding, radiant light of the risen Jesus Christ himself in order to be brought into this family in the first place. What are you guys doing making much of me? I didn't die for any of you guys. I had to be died for, Paul says. John Piper poses a helpful question followed by a statement. He says, how can you boast in the one who needed to be died for? Let all your boasting go to the one who dies for, Jesus himself. That the cross breaks the back of all boasting, Piper goes on to say. I love that. He goes on to ask a question at the end of, of verse 13. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. And he goes on to give a list of a few people that he did baptize. The point Paul's making here, the, the dousing of gospel fuel on the kindling of his appeal to unify in this question is this. Whose name you're baptized into is what matters, not the person doing the, bap- the baptizing so much. Now, th- this is crazy. This comes across as a bit sacrilegious, um, especially in a hyper-church uh, subculture, because what Paul is essentially saying is, I could care less uh, who baptized you. 
I really don't care at the end of the day so much as I care whose name you were baptized into. That's what's most important. In other words, um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that back in Orlando, we had a couple of uh, twilight baptisms in a kiddie pool because that's how you do it in the realm of church planting. If the two ladies that were baptized by me that night were more excited about the fact that I was doing the baptizing than the fact that they were being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's an epic fail. Baptism is a public declaration of the death of the old self. Think about it this way. How absurd it would be to say, when my old prideful self symbolically died, such and such did that. Such and such sent me to the grave. What are you doing? That's the old prideful self, you saying that. It doesn't even make sense, right? It's illogical. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying that the old self died. How could we possibly arrogantly beat our chest as if it makes a a difference one way or the other? Who did the baptizing? What matters is that you were united with Christ in his death, and you were raised to walk in newness of life as a new creation. Jesus did that. It's ultimately all about Jesus. And then in verse 17, he comes after Camp Apollos, which is really interesting. He doesn't come after Apollos himself, just to be clear. Paul's not attacking Peter or Apollos or Jesus. That's not what's going on here. He's coming after these factions in the church. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The truth statement behind verse 17 is this. You weren't saved by eloquent words of wisdom. You were saved by the person and work of Jesus. Now, yes, someone did preach the gospel, and you heard that most surely, but it wasn't through eloquent words of human wisdom that salvation came about for you. He's coming after the Apollos party here. If you read in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, this is where we first hear of Apollos. I think I have this in a passage up on the screen. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Right? He, he knew the Bible. He was really good at public speaking, rhetoric, which is a big deal in uh, the Greek uh, subculture, the Greco-Roman subculture. And it goes on to say in verse 27, When he wished to cross to Achaia, which is the province of Corinth, the region of Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Maybe that's why some people said, I follow Peter, because this guy's really coming at us with a Jewish background. I'm not digging that too much. I don't know. I'm speculating there. But what we do know is that Apollos was an eloquent, educated preacher of the word. As I said before, words rolled off of his tongue like honey. Paul will go on to say, um, I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it. I have no beef, no issue with Apollos or Peter, any of those guys. I'm for Apollos. But, but do you not see that no man is, is converted or sanctified into the image of Jesus apart from a sovereign divine work of God? 
And we'll, we'll go on to see that as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 a few weeks from now. The idea is stop making Apollos your functional savior, those of you who are in that camp. God did this. To God be the glory. Paul's trying to divert all the glory onto Jesus Christ, his person, his work. We, the church, have a song to sing absolutely. And that song is going to sound beautiful when, one, we recognize that God has ordained, he's instituted human leadership structures in the church And we submit ourselves gladly and humbly to those leadership structures that God has ordained, but only as those leaders submit themselves to King Jesus as the chief shepherd, recognizing that they are nothing more than under-shepherds who had to be died for. When when we bind to, to that kind of reality, we begin to sing a really sweet song as the church that's beautiful to the ears of those who hear it question this morning is, will we be a people who knit our hearts together, who, who mend the holes in our proverbial nets, who, who set the fractured bones in the church back in place wherever they exist so that we might functionally come together and sing a song that draws people to Jesus? Or will our song be one that empties the cross of Christ of its power? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.